0: The news continues, so let's hand it over to Laura Coates and CNN Tonight. Laura.
1: Hey, John Berman. Always nice to see you tonight, especially. And thank you all. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Alarms are being sounded, metaphorically, in the loudest ways yet by the West. The president, our defense secretary, our secretary of state, the head of NATO, and others, all putting Russia on blast for sinister intentions in hopes to somehow stave off an invasion of Ukraine, which they keep warning is imminent.
0: Every indication we have is they're prepared to go into Ukraine, attack Ukraine. My sense this will happen within the next several days.
2: Our information indicates clearly that these forces, including ground troops, aircraft, ships, are preparing to launch an attack against Ukraine in the coming
3: days. We see them add to the more than one hundred and fifty thousand troops that they already have a raid along that border, and I know firsthand that you don't do these sort of things for no reason.
1: They don't do these things for no reason. Well, they're also laying out Putin's playbook for the world. The Russian leader isn't known for his honesty, shall we say. He's manufactured crises before as a pretext for war, and Biden and company are warning beware because it seems to be happening all over again.
0: We have reason to believe that they are engaged in a false flag operation to have an excuse to go in.
2: Russia plans to manufacture a pretext for its attack. It could be a fabricated so-called terrorist bombing inside Russia, a staged drone strike against civilians, or a fake, even a real attack using chemical weapons.
3: Before any attack, we would expect to see uh, cyber attacks uh, false flag activities, uh, and, and a, and a number of other things, increasing, uh, uh, rhetoric in the information space. And we're beginning to see, uh, more and more of that.
1: In fact, there was shell fire today that hit a kindergarten facility in the eastern Ukraine region of Donbass, a kindergarten facility. Was it a provocation? Was it an accident? Frankly, it's unclear Ukraine and Russian-backed separatists are trading accusations about that very shelling. Two shells landed on the school. Now CNN is told, thankfully, that no children were in the room when they hit, thank God. But three people who work in the school were injured, and power was knocked out in the village. Ukraine's president is calling it, indeed, a, quote, provocation. While the U.S. is still gathering details, our defense secretary says, quote, we've said for some time that the Russians might do something like this in order to justify a military conflict. So we'll be watching this very closely. Another concerning move? Russia expelled our second-most senior diplomat in Moscow without any justification in what the State Department is now calling an escalatory step. So these tensions, they aren't easing, shall we say. Though the drumbeat of war seems to be growing louder and louder, the U.S. is still holding out hope that Russia will change its course and abandon the path of war and choose a different path. That, according to Secretary Blinken, who addressed the U.N. Security Council today. And despite all of the danger, despite all the threats to the people of Ukraine, it's pretty remarkable that the streets in the capital of Kiev still appear to be relatively calm. So have Ukrainians developed a resistance to Russia's aggression, their omnipresence since the 2014 invasion of Crimea? What is the scene like there tonight? Let's go to CNN's Matthew Chance, who is in Kyiv, to give us the latest. Matthew, what are you seeing out there? It sounds like there is relative calm, but that sounds deceptive in some respects. What are you seeing?
2: Yeah, yeah, relative calm, particularly when you consider the warnings that are coming thick and fast now from the United States and others that, you know, this country should brace itself essentially uh, for an onslaught by uh, Russian forces. I've already spoken to Ukrainian officials tonight and they've said, look, you know, we've been briefed on the US intelligence warning that there could be uh, a Russian attack, if not an outright invasion within the next several days. Um, And that's exactly the same kind of messaging in private that, of course, President President Biden, the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, are saying in public as well. And so it it, it gives us this indication that some kind of strategic decision has been taken in the United States, not just to share uh, U.S. intel privately, but to go out there publicly and say it as well in the hope to front foot the Russians and deter them from taking the action. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky has been on the front lines today um, meeting with uh, Ukrainian forces. That, as tensions rise between Ukrainian, the great Ukrainian military uh, and Russian-backed rebels in those regions in the east of the country that have been at war for the past eight years, with both sides accusing one another of firing artillery shells into residential areas. You spoke about that yeah. kindergarten. Uh, and Matthew, amazingly, I, none of the children were injured there. I, yeah.
1: that, and that is amazing. And I want to ask you about that very notion because tell me a little bit more about this region where that kindergarten building was struck. And again, I can't reiterate enough, the fact that not a child was injured, according to our reporting, they were in a different room. But you see from the pictures of what could have been toys strewn about, soccer balls, bricks. I mean, this could have been an absolute tragedy. What is this region like where it, was, where it was actually shelled.
2: Yeah, I mean, it could have been a tragedy. Um, but remember, there are 14,000 people that have died in that region because of this kind of action on both sides of the, uh, of the front line, in fact, uh, over the course of the past 18 years. And so it's a region that has become tragically very used to the idea that people get killed on a on a, a weekly, if not a daily, a daily basis, and obviously it's, it's a lot calmer than it has been in the past, but we're seeing a huge upsurge in ceasefire violations within the past couple of days, according to international monitors are there. And, you know, I got video tonight from the U- Ukrainian Defence Ministry uh, showing the aftermath, uh, a burning building of more uh, suspected rebel shelling, well, shelling that was blamed on Russian-backed rebels, Um, into those residential areas near that front line that divides government forces from Russian-backed rebels in the east of the country. Laura.
1: Matthew Chance in Ukraine, thank you for bringing us what we need to know. I appreciate it. I'm joined now by two men who know the players and have lived the reality between Russia and Ukraine. Former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, William Taylor, and former senior defense attaché to the Russian Federation, retired Brigadier General Peter Zwack. Gentlemen, I'm glad that both of you are here tonight. There's so much to unpack. And again, it's there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of things developing, and it's always hard to fit in everything we need to know within the confines of that uncertainty. But if I want to ask you a little bit, you were there at the time in 2014, when there was the initial invasion. Brigadier General, tell me a little bit about what you're seeing now in terms of the comparisons. Should there be the same level of heightened awareness from the U.S.'s part?
4: Um, Good evening, uh, uh, Laura, to you and your uh, listeners and viewing audience. 2014 was, uh, in the beginning, very opaque. It was very fog of peace turning into fog of gray zone conflict to conflict in the Donbass. It was, um, we didn't know what was going on. The deception was, was mind-boggling. Um, and, at the, and the narrative inside with the Russian media talking about, about Ukraine being a proto-fascist state, oppressing, um, um, if you will, the Donbass, talking about the problems and, and, the, and the persecution of, uh, of the Russian ethnic population and to the point... Where if I were a coal miner in the Urals, I want to drop my jackhammer, pick up a Kalashnikov and volunteer for these different groups that were going into Donbass. So all of that rhetoric is coming back. And, and, and what worries me is, is that the narrative, they're prepping in many ways politi- the uh, population. doesn't right. mean they want to go. Yeah. But, but, but they are certainly creating the atmosphere inside Russia to just, they need to justify an attack if they go. And I'm not sure if they've made that final decision yet. A lot will be based on what Zelensky in Ukraine does and how they uh, perceive NATO in the West.
1: Ambassador, you were the ambassador to Ukraine. And, of course, one of the big questions so many people have when you think about, oh yeah. you know, until recently, there seemed to be a real distinction between the level of alarm that was being sounded by our commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, and what was being <laughs> spoken by the president of Ukraine. Now, you've had some interactions in recent times that suggest that there's not really that much of a discrepancy any longer. And you actually give a lot of credit to the Ukrainian president for what he's doing now.
5: Laura, I give a lot of credit to the Ukrainian president. Uh, The Ukrainian president, a young, inexperienced politician. He's been in office for two years. President Putin's been in office for 22 years. He's a KGB operative. The Ukrainian president is staring down President Putin. He is holding on, and he's standing up, and he's not giving in to this pressure of all these troops on the border.
1: Now, is that surprising? Because, of course, we've known his comment in recent times, and Putin doesn't necessarily seem to convey a great deal of respect for this Ukrainian president we've seen, right?
5: He's got more respect now, Laura. He's got more respect now. I bet President Putin is surprised that President Zelensky hasn't caved, hasn't blinked, hasn't compromised, hasn't looked for a way out of this, due to all this military force on his border. President Zelensky is holding firm with President Biden's support and with a lot of support from the rest of NATO.
1: Now, if we can try to get into the mind of President Putin, and I know it's a very difficult thing. We don't want to make it personal. This is really seemingly, this is a diplomatic issue, obviously, still. There's a lot of strategy at play. and It's hard to read these tea leaves. But you were the attaché to the the, the Russian Federation. I'd love to figure out, is this an example of Putin the provocateur or Putin the determined? Which is it, do you think?
4: Um, I, I think that uh, this is turning increasingly into a game of poker. Mm. Um, he will not back down. I, I think that, and is doubling down, and that is part of the enhanced, if you will, force array in Belarus and, and out in the Black Sea. Um, I, I think that there's an aspect that uh, uh, they've now moved to brinksmanship, Laura. Mm. of the type that is coercive, cold-blooded, and so 1930s-ish. And and, and it could spin into a conflict. Frankly, nobody wants. But now you get pride and hubris and uh, ego that takes over rational thinking and even rational advice. Mm. And yes, uh, President Vladimir Putin is the ultimate decision-maker Uh, for the Russian Federation, without a doubt.
1: So what he says will ultimately go. Are you surprised? You mentioned the notion of the Ukrainian president standing his ground on behalf of the Ukrainian people. Are you surprised? Is Putin surprised that NATO hasn't stepped in in a more decisive way, even though obviously Ukraine is not a NATO member? But this seems to be obviously the core of the issue, at least in part.
5: Laura, I think what surprises Putin about NATO is its coherence. Interesting. It is holding together. These European countries sometimes don't hold together, but they're all pulling in the same direction. And again, I give President Biden's administration a lot of credit for this diplomatic effort to hold the NATO allies together, not just NATO allies, Europeans, not just, not just Europe, but we're talking about Japan and Australia. No. It's a major diplomatic feat, and so far they're holding firm.
1: Well, the, the thought, and you heard Blinken say today, that the idea of still hoping and holding out for diplomacy, which of course is always the ultimate goal, but is it a fool's errand when you're talking about the buck stopping with Vladimir Putin, and we've got the emotional aspect involved of his thoughts around Ukraine? And also, can you, can you both speak to this issue, and I'll ask you, Brigadier uh, General, I don't want people to have the impression that the Ukrainian people are somehow apathetic to the presence of Russian forces because they have been so ubiquitous and pervasive for so long. What do you attribute the idea of the seeming calm? Is it about trying not to have tempers flare or panic and run a mentality? Or is it because they don't know what's going to happen and they need to just wait?
4: Um, My uh, instinct here is is that the, 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 the population, it's sort of a... Pensiveness now. I think it's dawn. This has gotten really serious. Um, maybe a stoicness, mm. um, a quiet determination among the overwhelming bulk of Ukrainians that weren't anti-Russian, but they've become really pro-Ukrainian, and this is something I think that has jolted um, uh, the Kremlin. Uh, the uh, the other point, getting at your point, in the ambassador. Uh, ambassadors is that uh, yes, I believe that uh, that Ukraine backstopped by a lot of Western support, yeah, it doesn't mean boots in the ground, but yeah. it's virtually everything else. It has put Russia now, the Kremlin, on the edge of a precipice. They know they can go, they could get, get, they could gain a lot, but then the long game is a disaster form, and they know it, and, yeah. they ha- they, and and this is where they are right now, I believe.
1: Long game is a disaster. and the short game, is it, a ch- is it a chance that Putin might take?
5: I think Putin's going to look for a way out, Laura. I think that the price that he pays, the cost that it's going to be weighed on him from the sanctions, from, frankly, dead Russian soldiers coming back to villages mm-hmm. where they have to bury them, with parents, mothers, and fathers angry about why they are sacrificing their sons to invade their neighbor their friendly neighbor. I think this is a big problem for President Putin, and I think he knows it, and I think he'll look for a way out.
1: Well, you heard President Biden appeal to the Russian people as well to make maybe that point and underscore it. Gentlemen, thank you so much, Ambassador William Taylor and General Peter Zwack. Thank you. Well, keep Mm -hmm. watch for any major developments from Ukraine this hour. But up next, Donald Trump. Ivanka. Don Jr., they've all been ordered to sit for depositions before a state-level prosecutor looking into their business practices. What could it yield with their accounting firm now abandoning them? Well, that's the major question. We'll be right back. probably gauge the former president's legal jeopardy by the arguments his lawyers present in court, because in New York today, his legal team demanded the state attorney general instead investigate Hillary Clinton, that the former president is a member of a protected class, that it's somehow unconstitutional to investigate the Trump organization, and that, quote, the evidence is irrelevant, unquote. At one point, one of Trump's lawyers said his client shouldn't sit for a deposition because a grand jury was the proper venue to question the former president. While in the same hearing, another member of his defense team said it would be improper to use a grand jury. Left hand, meet your right hand. It should also come as no surprise then that the judge ruled that, quote, Donald J. Trump is ordered to comply in full, meaning turn over documents, and sit under oath for a deposition. Ivanka Trump and Don Jr., they've also been ordered to appear for depositions. Let's bring in Norm Eisen to discuss the arguments that the judge even compared to Lewis Carroll and George Orwell. Well, it's always an interesting day when literature makes its way into a courthouse in this country. Norm Eisen, good to see you.
0: Laura, thanks for having me back.
1: You know, this is a pretty big day in the sense of all the times people have contemplated whether the former president would sit for a deposition, be answering to a subpoena, especially in light of all that we're seeing right now and the trend of thumbing one's nose at a subpoena. What do you make of this decision and how big is this of a deal?
0: Uh, It it is a big deal, Laura, because the uh, walls of justice are closing in on Donald Trump from multiple directions. Uh, He's uh, being investigated in Congress and in Georgia for his big lie uh, about the election. But it turns out that there's another alleged big lie, a financial one, essentially keeping two sets of books. And that's what New York is closing in on. And uh, when you hear these absurd uh, arguments in court and the judge is forced to draw upon literary references, as you note, Trump's lawyers were countering that with Pulp Fiction. And the courts are having none of it. And I think you're gonna see uh, Trump, there will likely be an appeal, but Trump, Ivanka, uh, Don Jr. are gonna be forced to show up and answer questions or take the fifth.
1: And on that note, forcing to take the fifth. I mean, remember, Eric Trump was also subpoenaed and interviewed by this same New York AG's office. And he actually raised the Fifth Amendment Multiple times. I think it was you know dozens, if not hundreds of times in answer, response to questions. That is still an option for either Ivanka or Don Jr. or Donald Trump. But it's not a viable one when you're talking about the scope of other litigation efforts or prosecution efforts. Right. What you do in one context civilly might not a your benefit in a criminal context. Right.
0: Uh, that's right. Uh, the uh, New York AG Tish James investigation here is civil. And when you take the Fifth Amendment in a civil case, inference difference can be drawn. That is, uh, the fact that you took the Fifth Amendment can be used against you and can cause you to lose the civil case. Uh, but it, it also uh, creates issues uh, when uh, Donald Trump must... Uh, simultaneously uh, face possible criminal uh, uh, indictment, investigation, for example, in Georgia. uh, Congress may uh, make a a criminal referral on his behalf. And, uh, you know, it signals, imagine if it comes to a former president of the United States Mm -hmm. taking the Fifth Amendment. That'll be shocking and it'll have broader repercussions.
1: And, of course, you can just play the sound bites that show all the times he has spoken himself, either as a candidate or a president, and pejoratively and vilified people for having done that very notion and what he hoped it would intimate, if not guarantee, about one's guilt. So it's an interesting notion here. Final thought, though, Norm. Please contextualize for people the impact of Mazars this week, earlier this week, saying that the last 10 years of things are now unreliable. That word unreliable, if it's said in a criminal courtroom, let alone a civil courtroom, we as prosecutors and lawyers, U.S. defense counsel think themselves, hold on, this is not getting into evidence. It's unreliable. We don't have the indicia of credibility. When it comes to a statement like that, what impact might that have on a case like this?
0: Huge deal. Uh, that Trump's longtime accountants, Mazars, have now uh, stepped away, uh, told Trump and the world that these uh, financial statements are no longer to be relied upon. And Laura, to me, the single most interesting phrase in that letter, in which they fired the client, extremely unusual. Mazars said, we have a non-waivable conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. That means... Uh, that they are preparing to testify against him. They may be testifying against him. They may have claims against him. Their work for him may have put a target on them. So again, a deepening peril for Donald Trump. I know it takes a very long time for justice to work, but it does feel like it's closing in on his multiple big lies.
1: Well, we shall see, It's still in the investigative state. And of course, one of the reasons the New York AG was wanting the depositions and testimony was so she could figure out, essentially, who was responsible for the misstatements as she spoke about it. So I wonder how illuminating it will truly be. Norm Eisen, as always, thank you, and nice to see you. Thanks, Laura. Ahead, I want to dig into one of the GOP's latest attempts to block one of President Biden's judicial nominees, specifically Senators Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. If you're going to accuse someone of being soft on crime, pretty important to get your facts right. And we have the facts you should know next. If you were wondering when the claws were gonna come out, here they are. But no, not mine. Those are particular Republican senators who tried to imply that Nina Morrison, a judicial nominee, is undeserving of a lifetime appointment because she believes in criminal justice reform, and she had the audacity to serve as an advisor to two elected DAs who implemented policies that decided to deprioritize and in some cases decline prosecutions of certain nonviolent crimes. Oh, and apparently she's had a hand in getting too many people released from prison. Well, you know what? That's the absolute truth. They're right. She did get people released from prison. People who never should have been there in the first place because they were innocent. She helped about 30 wrongly convicted people who were ultimately freed from prison or even death row. Now, the operative words I just used were wrongly convicted. You have to wonder in what world could that possibly be disqualifying for a judge, or rather, in whose world?
5: I cannot support your nomination, and I will not support the nominations of judges or any other individuals sent to us by this administration who are soft on crime and soft on criminals. I will confess the whole of your record is deeply disturbing. Across this country, Americans are horrified at skyrocketing crime rates. And all of those are the direct result of the policies you've spent your entire lifetime advocating.
1: Now, Ted Cruz, he did acknowledge the invaluable work of the Innocence Project, where she worked. But in a backhanded turn, he tried to intimate that Morrison's advocacy of so-called progressive prosecutors meant she didn't care about innocent victims, an attack that the nominee, frankly, admirably, defended herself against.
5: You're the head of the Innocence Project. Innocence Project actually does good work for people who are wrongfully committed. They, c- convicted. They should be released. But do you care about the innocent people who are murdered because you keep advising people who put policies in place that result in more innocent people being murdered?
1: Absolutely, Senator. And and to clarify, my role in those transition committees were only on the issue of what's called conviction integrity, not the front-end prosecution policies, but on the review of old cases. That is the limited capacity on which I worked. I played no role in formulating the front-end policies, um, but it is because when the wrong person is convicted of murder, the person who's actually committed the crime isn't brought to justice. I mean, again, this is a woman who has spent her entire career dedicated to righting the wrongs of our justice system by getting, again, innocent people out of prison. And so, frankly, it was notable when Tom Cotton challenged Morrison for casting doubt on the prosecution of Liddell Lee, an Arkansas man convicted for murdering his neighbor in 1993. In that case, a judge had denied repeated requests from the ACLU, from the Innocence Project, to test the murder weapon right up until the eve of Lee's execution. Four years after he was put to death, it was revealed a different man's DNA was actually found on the murder weapon.
2: He was convicted by a jury and sentenced to death based on eyewitness testimony and his possession of her stolen property.
5: Do you believe that Liddell Lee committed the rapes and murders he was accused and convicted of committing.
1: And eyewitness identification, which you reference, is actually the single leading proven cause of wrongful convictions. I mean, if if these GOP attacks seem unfitting, it's because the facts don't back up their accusations. In fact, as Republicans accuse the Biden administration of being soft on crime— the record actually shows that both the federal prison population and police funding have actually expanded under President Biden's watch. Frankly, much the chagrin of his Democratic supporters. Yes, violent crimes and violent crime rates, they are on the rise. And several major cities saw record homicide rates just last year as the nation's homicide rate saw its biggest single year jump since the 1960s. And I completely agree All of this is extremely concerning. But we have to put this into context. Overall, crime rates, including national homicide rates, are well below where they were in the 80s or even in the 90s. And while there's no single explanation for this current rise, experts say there's a lot more to consider here than what Republicans want to blame it on. It's not just a matter of policy. Experts point to the pandemic, frankly, as a major factor as it upended every aspect of our lives. And you can consider that or not. Couple that with the sale of firearms in the mid-2020s and soaring, that above, soaring above predictions by about hmm, three million. Research has shown where there are more guns, there are more shootings. And we can't forget how all of this played out in the midst of a national reckoning that may have led some officers Police officers pulling back from their duties. Now, all of this is to say that Republican attempts to link Morrison's record and her work to the rise in crime, it just isn't rooted in the facts or the principles. It appears to be rooted almost entirely in political opportunity. And frankly, it has me wondering that it may be a preview of what's to come with respect to at least one prospective Supreme Court nominee. You know, of the qualified black women on President Biden's shortlist for Supreme Court nominee, at least one. Circuit Judge Katanji Brown Jackson was a federal public defender. Could it be that these statements were an attempt to capitalize on public sentiment that tries to link these policies to high crime rates? An attempt to maybe ride that wave to dilute the credibility of such nominees. Maybe just see if the spaghetti sticks to the wall before the name of the nominee is posted to it. Well, we're gonna turn to a man who has stood in both sets of shoes as a federal prosecutor and as the former director of the Wisconsin Innocence Project. He knows this nominee, Nina Morrison, personally. So what does he think is really motivating these accusations? Next. the question if Republicans are truly the tough on crime party of law and order as of course you've even heard recently Senator Mitch McConnell speak about emphatically well shouldn't they be for Nina Morrison I mean the innocent project attorney whose work ensures that the real criminals are caught and the wrongfully convicted ones go free that would make sense right I mean it's baffling but then again this is what you get when politics are at play and you try to use it to make sense of the nonsensical. I want to bring in Stephen Wright, former co-director of the Wisconsin Innocence Project and someone who actually knows Nina Morrison personally. Stephen Wright, it's good to see you, particularly in this time like this. First of all, speak to me about what these conviction integrity units are. She spoke about being on not the front end of policy, but conviction integrity units. What are those and why are they so important?
3: Yeah. So part of what was problematic about the hearing was that the senators were attempting to hold miss um, Morrison responsible for charging decisions. That's when a prosecutor decides whether to actually pursue uh, a case against an individual defendant. But that has nothing to do with Nina Morris, and that's not her expertise. That's not her experience. That's not really been her um, uh, huge contribution to the law. Instead, what she does is she works with prosecutors to, to prevent and to review questionable convictions. And the, one of the biggest contributions she's had is she's helped a lot of places establish what are called conviction integrity units. And all that is, is it's an in-house team in any prosecutor's office that, that's really dedicated to making sure that there are no more innocent people put in jail, and to also find ways to help and to and to release and exonerate those individuals who have been wrongfully convicted.
1: That doesn't sound like soft on crime. That sounds like making sure that the right person is held to account for a crime, and if the wrong person's in prison, don't we want them out to make sure that, well, as it said, Convictions actually have integrity. So what do you think is actually behind this? That doesn't make logical sense that they would want to attack her for that. It seems quite nonsensical. What is the undercurrent in your mind as to why they are attacking her in this way?
3: So when I talk to people, especially here in my home state of Wisconsin, they are sincerely concerned about the rise in crime. They see the crime statistics, but also they see things like the smash and grabs that you've seen in Mm -hmm. San Francisco and that you've seen in places like Los Angeles, and they are jaw-dropping. And so people, I think, are generally talking about crime in general, and they want those type of things to stop. I think the Republicans on the committee, however, are trying to use this opportunity to pin those crime rates increases and those smash and grabs on the Biden administration, and there's really no real reason for them to do it they're making it political even though the biden administration has been pretty good with trying to help states and local governments actually prevent crime and to stop the type of things that you've been seeing on television.
1: And to be clear, the kind of work the Innocence Project would have done with Conviction Integrity and the like, we're not talking about, and I don't mean to minimize a smash and grab, we're talking about very serious crimes, which the wrong person has been convicted, which means that the right person, the one who actually did the crime, is out and about, which frankly could be even more terrorizing to a community that doesn't even know that person has not yet held held to account. When you look at this, the overall notion, this is a federal judiciary nominee, lifetime tenure, what would be the value in your mind to having this person or someone with this particular background and career as a member of the federal bench?
3: You know, the senators are right about one thing federal judges hold a great deal of influence on how the shape of individual prosecutions go. And so having someone who is familiar with the causes of wrongful conviction, someone who is not only an expertise on the policy of it, but the constitutional basis of so many of the protections we enjoy, things that can help prevent, say, prosecutorial misconduct or misidentifications, Mm -hmm. two of the leading causes of wrongful conviction. Having a judge who's an expert in those type of things, who can help Help scrutinize the case and help achieve justice is very important. You know, I should also make a special note that um, you know individuals like Nina help solve crimes. We know that about of the all the exonerations that have been proven via DNA. That's where DNA was left. We're normally talking about sexual assaults, but not always. Uh, We've been able to identify the real perpetrator in about half of those crimes. I know from my own experience representing an individual who was wrongfully convicted for a, a sexual assault, that the true perpetrator was actually a serial rapist who committed many, many crimes and was not caught. And therefore he was able to perpetrate a series of other sexual assaults over the year because the wrong person went to jail for one of his attacks.
1: In other words, those who do this work are not soft on crime. They're helping to pursue justice, which I think has a very fundamental role on the bench. Stephen Wright, thank you so much. I appreciate hearing from your expertise. We'll be right back. The world is now weighing in on Camilla Valieva's emotional reaction after what can only be described as her disastrous performance in the free skate program at the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics. The Russian teen who has been at the center of an Olympic doping scandal went from first in the expected gold medal winner to fourth after a series of falls costing her the chance at even meddling at an event that many pegged her overwhelmingly to win. Instead, it was her teammates who took gold and her teammates who took silver, silver, while Japan's Kaori Sakamoto took bronze. My next guest was actually there in the Beijing arena to see Valieva's performance, describing what she saw play out as heartbreaking. Christine Brennan is a CNN sports analyst and a USA Today columnist and has been at every Olympics I can think of and with her presence there and reporting so invaluable. Christine, what happened? When you were there, paint the picture for us.
4: Laura, it was incredibly troubling. One of the worst nights I've ever seen at an Olympic Games. And something that was just so emotional and it just seemed so wrong, frankly. A 15-year-old, of course, everyone knows in the midst of this huge scandal, the doping scandal, and the weight of the world just came crashing down on her shoulders. Uh, You can feel that she should not be at these Olympics, that she should have been banned, uh, because of using a, uh, being tested positive for a performance-enhancing drug. And I think you can also feel incredible sympathy for Camilla uh, Velieva and what she's been through. I think you can have those two conf-
1: Well, I think you're right that both things can be true because we are seeing absolutely a 15-year-old girl who many believe may have been exploited in some way or the idea of not being able to have the benefit to even have this occur. And it's something that I think we have a little bit of sound difficulty with Christine. But when you think about all of these things and how this looks, look at the images. Truly heartbreaking to see what happened. And, and truly ha- and truly really difficult. We've lost her signal. We're going to come back to Christine Brennan in just a moment because I really want to hear her take on that extraordinarily emotional moment. We'll be right back. We're back talking about what happened to Christine Valieva, who is at the center of the doping scandal. We lost the signal for Christine Brennan, who was there in that arena during that emotional and disappointing defeat where she didn't even get to the medal podium. Of course, the irony being, had she actually taken gold, there would not have been a medal ceremony because, of course, she has this still looming doping scandal ahead of her. Let's bring in Don Lemon, who's up next, of course, on Don Lemon tonight. And I'd love to get his take on this because it's such an important moment that we're seeing over and over again.